I have, I, I preached the first half of this psalm several weeks ago, and it was Psalm number 19. So if you have your scriptures, you may want to turn to that. This is part two of that message in Psalm 19. And so since it's been some time, we will have a, a time of review, and I would like to read the entire psalm to you. <clears throat> so as I see the pages turning, I'll give you a few minutes. I hear the squeaking on the glass of your tablets that you get done. Welcome. I'm going to read all seven or 14 verses to you. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there any words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for his son, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of heavens and its circuit to the end end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. <clears throat> the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is, is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they are than gold, and even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me then I shall be blameless and innocent in great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now this particular psalm, the goal that I had last time I started this was for the first six verses. And let me repeat what that was. The doctrine that I wanted you to clearly embrace was this. The creation speaks clearly of God's existence. It provides a constant witness to his glory, his wisdom, his power, his knowledge, his everywhere presence. All of his natural attributes can be seen. All of them. His omniscience. His omnipotence. He knows all things. If anyone seriously looks at the creation, they can come to that conclusion on their own. But the Holy Spirit can open the understanding of the Almighty as the Creator God by looking at this and he can realize that God must reign sovereign over all of them. I said briefly before that this particular psalm was a favorite of many. Even C.S. Lewis said about this psalm, it was the greatest poem in the Psalter, that it was the greatest lyrics that the world has ever seen. Of course, that may be his favorite. But who can take the Word of God and say this is better than that in the Word of God? But I'll tell you, I'll tell you this about this particular psalm. For all of us who seek truth and and, and they seek the face of the Lord. The Word of God is the only place to do that. He is telling us right now where to look to find God. 
You look to the heavens, you see his handiwork. But you look to the word and you find him. And what uh, James Boyce, in his commentary, he said this. You've got two books involved. you got a great big book and you have a little tiny book. Creation is the big book. It's a big book. I mean, it's really big. But we do have a little book. A little book that contains all that we can know about God. Not just about his power. But we can know about his holiness. We can know about his, his righteousness. His justice. And we can know about his mercy and his kindness and his grace. We can come to those conclusions looking at his, at his universe. But I'll tell you what. There's nothing like being told clearly and plainly that God loves sinners and will save them if they trust him and rely on him. Now, in looking through these words, we have to understand certain things. That many of these words are metaphorical. They're personifications. Now, this is not an English class, but I'll say it like this. This psalm is saying that the creations have a voice. Well, do you listen with your ear and hear the words? No. But like a person, creation speaks evidence. And you have to have the heart to listen. You have to have the willingness or the desire to say, where is God in this world? And the creation will speak to you. It'll say, who can make this? Only God. There's a personification involved here. The creation is just a creation without a personality. But the psalmist gives him a personality and says that this person speaks the glory of God the way we should be speaking the glory of God. And so let me give you a few of the observations that we had on our first message and then I'll get into the new material. We have here, as uh, we can see, that the heavens cannot be silenced. You may say, well, they're never speaking to begin with. No. To those who have an ear to hear, and to those who have eyes to see, they cannot be silenced. All you have to do is to have a heart that says, where is God? And you will see. Even in God's creation, in the first chapter of Genesis, when he created the heavens and the earth and the sea, those are like pages in a book that says, will you like to see what God has done? But we have confined our search to the heavens in this particular psalm. We talked about how vast the universe is. It can be measured in light years. The idea that light travels at 186,000 miles per second, and yet we have light that hasn't even reached the earth yet, that's a big universe. But the Lord has made it just like that. And he is the, the one who can do these things. However, what does it declare? It declares his power, declares his knowledge, declares his abilities. But what does it say about his holiness? Well, it says, look to the little book. The little book, the one that's given by the prophets. It screams out with a voice, I have a maker that has knowledge and power and wisdom. But where do you find it then? You seek out the Lord where he can be found in his word. So we can see that this particular passage has a lot to give us, a lot to help us understand but the world, living under the depravity of the human heart, does not have eyes or ears that want to hear. You see, the idea of a person being a sinner doesn't mean that they absolutely do not, they, they do not have the, shall we say, the parts to hear. 
They don't have the heart to hear. Being dead spiritually gives them a bias that they say when they hear the truth, instead of saying, tell me that again, they start to refute what they hear. Now, if you ever take a look at a real debate, not the kind of debates we have on TV, not the kind of debates we see on Fox News or on CNN, but a debate where people actually listen to each other, you will see that when they run out of facts, when they run out of real arguments, and they run out of integrity, then they start calling each other names. They start mocking each other. They start censoring the others in their way they're thinking. And that is exactly what the sinner has done to God. They look at each other and they say, where is God? And they mock his name. They mock Christians who believe in God. And they censor the thought of how to believe that he is. Instead of looking for him, they look for reasons not to believe. So here we see the great big book speaking out loudly. Then the psalmist comes back and says, he actually makes a pivot. Instead of looking at the big book, looking at the creation, he turns and looks to the word of God. And this is where we are at. We have been given the greatest, most beautiful gift that can ever be imagined. Every day when you wake up, you see the greatness and the beauty of the creation. But then you have something else where it is true knowledge of God right at your fingertips, right here among us. So let's begin to read verse 7, and we'll pick up from there. <clears throat> I'm going to take the first uh, verses 7, 8, and 9 together, because if you look closely, it's only one sentence. And so let's listen carefully. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This is not only perfect in its symmetry, it's perfect in its poetic presence. It is also very enlightening to us as to who God really is. Now, Spurgeon put it this way. This is a brief of Berbian's instructive hexapla. Hexapla. Well, that's Greek. I don't care if you remember it. What it means is that it's taken a, a, a truth and written it down six different ways. Kind of saying the very same thing over again but from a different perspective, but six different ways. We're looking at the idea that what has been given to us has been God's law. We've been given his testimony. We've been given his precepts. We've been given his commandments. We've been given the fear of God. We've been given his rules. And every one of these are of great value, great value and great beauty. It is a privilege to have been given the knowledge of God and the Word of God in this way. We can say, well, who is God? We can only see his thumbprint, his handiwork, his footprint in what he has done because he is spirit and those who have dead hearts cannot see him. And so they must be told with words that there is a law that is perfect. 
And if you hear and listen to the law of God, your heart will respond. Respond with evidence and proof of where you are in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of this world. One or the other. Because you respond appropriately that way. Or in that domain. I would like to separate this particular six um, ways of saying how God is presenting himself to the world by saying that these are the means of grace. And you say, well, why would you, why would you call them means of grace? Because they are an explanation or a revelation who they are to men. And we'll start off with the idea that this is a revelation in this particular instance to his people. Because when he says, um, the, law, the law of the Lord is perfect, there is a response to that. It says, reviving the soul. Now, that is what it does to God's people. But to a person that is seeking God, who does not have the knowledge of God, the law of the Lord is something to be feared. Something that says you have been condemned and you are dead. So do you see the difference here? There is a difference of the person that's saying, I am I'm the psalmist, I am speaking that the law of the Lord is perfect. I am able to see the beauty of it, and it revives my heart. That is a different relationship than someone that says, yeah, I've heard about the law of God. It says I can't do this, I can't do that, and it condemns me, and it puts them in a different position. But you see, in that position, it becomes a means of grace to touch their heart with the finger of guilt. And they say, well, how do they see God? The one who loves God, that believes in God, that lives in repentance to God, they say, how can you get more perfect than the law of God? How can you get more beautiful and more virtuous than the law of God? And yet the one struggling under the conviction of sin says, how can I even exist in the presence of God? How can I endure the word of the law of God? And so they have this great difference, this great difference. And so when a person approaches God in their sin and sees the beauty of his holiness, then they say, what can I do with a God like this? It is not, they, they have nothing in their hearts that says, oh, the law is perfect. It's more like the law is condemning. I know that it is true, and it is condemning, and it comes and it weighs upon me. The testimony of God. We looked at the law of God, the testimony of God, and what is the testimony? It is something that God is a witness to, something that he says about himself, something that he says about you. The testimony of the Lord is sure. There's nothing worse than an, uh, than an unreliable witness. Someone that you just cannot believe half the time when they tell you something. Something that if you, if you put them on a witness stand, the opposing uh, attorney will say, uh, Your Honor, this person lies half the time. And then you get to guess which half. You know, is he lying for you or lying for them? And so we need to understand that when God has a voice in this world, which is the creation, when have you ever gotten up and the sun rose from the west? Hmm? When have you gotten up and there were no trees? When have you gotten up and there was no air? The testimony of the Lord is sure and it's consistent and it's always true. And his word endures forever. This is one thing that, that the sinner can say. Well, I don't know about the Lord. I don't know if I believe him or not. But every day is as it was yesterday. And everything that's in this book has never changed since the time it was given. But I'll tell you what the word of the Lord or the testimony of the Lord can do. It can make a simple-minded sinner, and I say simple-minded not because they're unintelligent, 
is because they do not have the bias toward him. They have the bias against him. This word, by the Spirit, can make the simple wise. The precepts of the Lord are right. Now, the idea of a precept is something that you can say, well, what is the law of God? Well, if you hear the law of God, the idea that there is an underlying principle that makes it true is a precept. The precepts of the Lord are right. You may hear the law of God, but, but Christ says it like this. You have heard of old, thou shalt not kill. But I say, you cannot have hatred in your heart. There is a precept that lies underneath of it. There is a precept that is under the law, that is everlasting, that is eternal, that enables you to not only say, yes, since we cannot hate our brother, we shall not kill him, nor do anything against him that is of detriment to him. The command of the Lord is pure. We can see that this is also a means of grace. We understand that the command of God can be understood two ways. You can read a law and say that's a command of God. But you can also say, I just heard the command of God. He is the one that just said, don't do this or do this. That is his command. And his command is pure. There's nothing unreliable about it. Nothing unsure about it. And what do we do with that? We say, well, I don't know how to live my life. I don't know what to do. Please, Lord, show me your will. Help me to understand. The command of the Lord is pure. It is simply moral purity and veracity. And it's, it's, it's the beauty of a virtuous life. And it's given to us in the word. And it is pure. And so what do you do? You do what is right. That is God's command. And that is God's will in your life. Well, I was really wondering what, you know, what bank I should go to to open an account. Now, don't worry about that. Not unless it's a sin to do one. Not unless it's a sin to do that. You have the liberty to do what you want to do as long as it's virtually right. As long as it's morally right. And so the commandment of the Lord is pure. And what does it do? It enlightens the eyes of what we ought to be doing. We should be making our decisions appropriately from the heart of God saying, how can I love God with all my heart and how can I love my brother as myself? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean. And this is another means of grace. Why is the fear of the Lord clean? Because that is the beginning of our wisdom. It is the beginning that the word of God, his law, his commandments, his precepts come to us. And should we become afraid, then that is the beginning of wisdom. That is where we begin to see what is clean and not clean in our lives. And all these things can be summed up the way the ESV puts it in verse, um, in, in this one uh, last teaching, the rule of the Lord. And how does that, all these things that we put together, they are the laws of God. The rules of the, rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, I would like to remind you that the writer of this said that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So let me go back over this list again and make sure that you understand some of the precepts. If the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, then the need of the sinner is this. He must have had a dead soul. That is what the need of the sinner is. If the, priest, or if the testimony of the Lord is sure, then what does the sinner need? It's because he had a foolish heart. He had a foolish heart. If the precepts of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. Rejoicing the heart. Then that is because there was no hope in this heart to begin with to give him rejoicing, uh, a rejoicing heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now why would it need to enlighten the eyes? The only reason would be is that the heart was blind to begin with. The heart was blind, needing an enlightening. Now the fear of the Lord is clean and it endures forever. Then the soul that is destined to the that is destined to end in weeping and gnashing of teeth, that is the only reason that it would need to endure forever, because the pain would also endure forever. And lastly, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous. And what the, what the soul needs to do now is not what's right in its own eyes, following the falsehoods and wickedness of this world, but what is right in the eyes of God. So let's take a look at this list once more time. One more time, let's go over the idea that the law of the Lord is the awakening power to convict the conscience. It is the very first signs of life in the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect. Why? Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is the witness of the Lord to convince the fool that points us to, it's an, uh, to the uh, available presence of God. The testimony of the Lord. And why would we need that? <clears throat> because it is making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, the underlying principles of holiness that provides a moral substance to the law of God, rejoicing of the heart. And then we get to the idea that the commandment of the Lord, giving of his divine instructions to guide us in the journey into his presence, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, the effect of the heart coming to the realization that it is God speaking to us in our conscience. It must endure forever. All these rules, very much like the laws and commandments of the Lord, a simple understanding of how to act in the presence of God because he is true and righteous. These are the six parallel teachings that are found in the first three verses of 7, 8, and 9. So let's go on to verse number 10, 11, and to the end and see what the Lord can provide us after learning this. To be denied, this is, no, this is verse number 10. More to be desired they are than gold, much more than fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You know, as I get older, I used to, I can look at my life and I can look at my, my the days that I've lived. And when I was a young man, it seemed as though I only sought after pleasure. You know, the only things that I wanted to do was what's fun, what's carefree, what's uh, the avoidance of, of being uh, pinned down with responsibilities. Pleasure was a big deal in my life when I was young. When you get a little bit older, you have responsibilities of children, of family, wives, bills to pay. And you end up seeking after a more successful route, something that's more profitable. And so when the writer here says, there is something more than honey, and there is something more than gold. There's something that's sweeter than honey, something more to be desired than gold. And, and just what is that? It is the law of the living God. It is the precepts of God. It is the means of grace. All that we have seen, the testimony of God, his precepts, his commandments, his fear, the rules there given to us only in the little book, only in the scriptures can we find these things. And therefore, flee the, loose, you know, the youthful lust that you have. And, and walk away from the type of things that 
that have enslaved you as an older person, profit of this world and pleasures of this world, they will dim and really, uh, they just, they just, they'll, they'll fly away from you once you seek the truth of Christ, once you seek God, and you will find that there is more beauty, more value in the scriptures than you can find anywhere else. Anywhere else. The beauty of this little book. This is what we're looking at. The Word of God alone, alone is the only source of our knowledge of God in His greatness. And if you desire to be in His presence, you will find the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, for His atoning work, you may trust His grace and be in the presence of a holy God. Verse number 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The Word of God warns us of the destructive power that sin has in our own lives and to our souls. God does not tell us what is wrong and what is sinful just to take away our joy. He does not. Sin is what's destroying us. Sin is what's keeping us addicted to the evil and to the darkness, keeping us so vulnerable to falsehoods. We need to be released from its power. We need to be released from its uh, damning uh, capabilities. Because being justified of our sins is a great blessing. But also in this life, as we live to God, we must be released from its power. And to do that, we must take advantage of the means of grace. And what is that? The little book. You wake up in the morning, bless the name of God because of the big book. Because of all the things that he's done, you can see with your eyes. But there is something that you have to have within your life. And that is the faith and knowledge of things that cannot be known otherwise other than in this book. You cannot know that you have an, a debt to God because of your sin without reading this book. You may feel guilty. The big book can tell you that. But how can you find yourself in the presence of God without the knowledge of Christ. It is a gift. And you say, well, that's, well, some people don't have that. God has his ways. You trust him for that. If you have questions about God's justice, do not doubt him. If you have questions about why did God do this and why does God do that, the first thing you need to do is to just trust God that he is good. The, the creator of all the world is not a sinner. He isn't. He is not a bad guy. He's the good guy. That's just what we need to do. Verse number 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now, we can see the advantage here. That if you take to heart this little book, if you give its due um, value to this book in your life, if you say there is no other place, no other position that I can find myself in, that I can go to, there's no other place I can go other than this book to find the truth about God, then that is where your heart is going to look. That is where you will have your search. And you must be honest and desirous in this search because it will warn you of things to avoid. It will warn you about your own sin. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And the greatest thing that you need to be warned about is your own sin. He goes on to say that in keeping them there is great reward, but he implies in this verse 
that the remaining verses is going to be an expansion of this very idea. By them I have been warned. And then this idea is expanded. There's great reward in learning the Word of God and studying the Word of God and believing the Word of God. And that great reward stems right out of the fact that we have been warned from it. Warned to avoid sin, to not feed sin, to stay away from conditions that would enable sin. We need to starve the sin in our lives. And from that we get the great reward of what? The presence of the Holy Spirit within our lives. And so when we have that as a reward, we have to understand that the sinner or the sinful mindset, the idea, the way we used to live our lives would be, my reward is having my bills paid, having my health back, having a happiness of all the things that sinners wanted. These are not the things that you should be seeking after. You should be seeking after the presence of a holy God with a life that will be continuously after you are in the grave. The beauty of that life begins now. The rewards of that life begins now. We must never forget that sin is always going to be your enemy. It will always try to destroy you. Satan is never going to be your friend. These things are always meant to trap you, to ensnare you, to have you fall into a pit. But you can escape these things by leaning toward God, leaning toward His Spirit, by seeking His presence, by appreciating and loving the beauty who God is. Verse number 12. Who can discern His errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. This is a deeper explanation of the previous verse. This particular question, who can discern his errors? Rhetorical in nature. The person that is saying, verse number 12, who can discern his errors, is this. Who can know their own heart? Can a blind man see himself? Can a man who does not have any moral strength understand his own moral depravity? And so the question is easy to answer if you take the answer from the Scriptures. The world is going to say, no one knows me but me. No one knows me but me, and I know me. You don't even know who we are. The sinner doesn't even know who they are. They have created their own moral standard, and they have met their own standard, and they have approved of themselves. But God says, here is true holiness. Compare yourself to Him. Compare yourself to God. And who can discern that error? Only God can point it out to the sinner. Only God can make the simple wise. Only God can give insight to a person to understand his nature. And then the psalmist declares, Please, declare me an innocent man from my hidden faults. And to whom are they hidden? They're mostly hidden from himself. They may be hidden from everyone else. They may be hidden from the world. No one may know your hidden sins. You may know some of them, but I'll guarantee that you don't know all of them. When the Holy Spirit starts working into your life, you need to be willing to work with Him. You need to be have, have the mindset that says, I want you to help me. I want you, Holy Spirit, to work within me to not only reveal what I don't understand, but even Give me courage and strength 
to give you free reign to seek out everything in my life. Who can discern his heirs? Since we cannot, it is the request of the man who seeks the presence of God to say, search me, find out my sin, help me to understand. Give me a heart that loves you so much that I can now see and understand my own sin. Declare me innocent from hidden faults, and how can that possibly be? Once a man is told by the Spirit of God that he is a sinner, like Zacchaeus, he should just say, I repent of my sin. If I've stolen, I give it back sevenfold. If I've done this, I will repair, I will repent. You do these things. And when this is done, it is God who justifies, not man. God will justify in his work. Only God can answer these questions. So without the means of grace, we are unable to plunge or understand the depth of our own depravity. Without God giving us his word, without his spirit taking his word and enabling us to understand, without us saying, this is the law of God, this is the commandment of God, this is the testimony of God, this is the precepts of God, these are the rules of God. Allow them to work within me, to see myself. Let them teach me how to have my path turn from sin, to walk in his presence, and then I'll understand how he can justify a sinner. He bears the sin of the sinner. He has taken it upon himself for us. But we are called to live the same life he lived. And Gary put it very aptly this morning. This is the one thing that came into my mind when he talked about the crucifixion of our Lord, when it was preordained, when it was set in plan, when it was, when it was told that the world that Jesus Christ would be dying. And that many people hear it this way with their ears. They hear it in a way that makes it easier for them. They hear, the Lord died for me, so I won't have to die. Well, in one sense, that's very true. But in another sense, that's not true at all. You don't have to die for your sin, but you have to die for holiness. Do you see, many of us will have to die to sin to walk in the Lord's way. You no longer have to die for your sin. He died for your sin. You will not have to bear the punishment of sin. He bore your punishment. But will you now live for Christ? Will you walk the way he walked? Because his walk led right to the cross. What will our walk do? Right to the bank? No. It walks the very same path that he walked. It's just now we walk to the grave knowing that our Christ died for us, but we are now serving him, serving him in this very same walk. We may end up one day on a cross. We may one day end up being persecuted. We may be spat upon. We may be uh, treated like he was treated. And why shouldn't we be? We have the wherewithal to do it. We have the knowledge of the little book telling us, be brave, do what is right, do as a Christian, do the way he would have done. We should be able to live that way for Christ. Who can declare, discern his heirs, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Help me to know what I need to do so that I can do it. So that I can live this way. So that I can be dead to sin and alive to God. Verse number 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. 
Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. As we can see, these verses are kind of escalating. We've heard about the seven means of grace. And then they say, please, Lord, look into my heart. Help me to see my hidden sins. And then he goes to an even greater degree of, Lord, please preserve me from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The deceitful and sinful heart has a way of thinking like this. Oh, my goodness, if God died for me, I cannot be condemned. I cannot lose my salvation. And therefore, I will just let him take me on flowery beds of ease. Remember that poem? Not quite that way. Isaac Watts, I believe it was. Shall we, shall we just live on flowery beds of ease while others sail through bloody seas? No. That's not the case, is it? We need to see ourselves that presumptuous sins is the idea of someone saying, since I cannot go to hell, God will forgive me if I live this way. Just this once. You see, a presumptuous sin is something that says, I shall sin in the presence of God resisting the Holy Spirit because I know he's a kind guy. He's a good guy. He has forgiven me. But not knowing your sins, not wanting God to point your sins out in your heart, is the stepping stone to presumptuous sins. And therefore, presumptuous sins will lead to an even worse state. And therefore, this the psalmist is now saying, listen to the little book. Listen to the means of grace. As you give God, shall we say, uh, I, I don't want to say this in an, in, an, in an unfair way. Giving God permission to work in your life? Can you give the Almighty permission? I would dare not say that. But I would say cooperate with the Holy Spirit in saying, Search me, O God. Search me in my heart that I might know where I have sinned against you. And then listen to him. Welcome the searching of the Spirit within your heart. And you be the tour guide of all the secret places. And you listen to that so that he may present, prevent you from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins. Now, some will say that, you know, sin is sin. It's all sin. And therefore, little sins are as bad as big sins. Well, that's not what the scriptures talk about them. There are some sins that are worse than others. They truly are. And presumptuous sins are some of the worst. They truly are. We, as human beings, without the Spirit of God, are very slow to discover our own sins. I dare say that we can never even do it. Even when the Holy Spirit and we resist Him sometimes, do we not? We are slow to discover our secret sins. But let us not be that way. Presumptuous sins, they confront the Holy Spirit and they resist Him. Do not do this. The psalmist is pleading for grace to prevent him from doing this dreaded sin, presumptuous sin. Verse number 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. This is the final prayer that we see after the psalmist is saying, I have seen the greatness of his creation. I have heard his voice that he is mighty to save. He is great. Even the sun going across the sky is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, saying, I have warmed the earth. 
He's like a mighty man that's strong, that has his capability. The creation has a voice. But the little book, he's have, he's, it, the little book has even a greater voice, a more detailed voice about coming to searching my own particular heart. And this is the heart, this is the prayer that he has. Search me, O oh God. Search me and see if there's some sinful way inside. Prevent me from doing presumptuous sins. And then he says, even in my own private meditations, as I approach you, may the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. My rock and my redeemer. The strength of your soul and the one who saves you from your sin, your rock and your redeemer. This is a very good prayer. He has hopes because the God that knows his heart still loves him. A heart that is wicked in many ways, in ways that many times we don't even want to know and we do not seek. But the Holy Spirit prompts us, look inside and cleanse your ways. Cleanse your ways. So, let's go to our practical application, and that is this. Recognize in your life the means of grace. Recognize what God is using to change you. The law of the Lord, it is perfect, is it not? The testimony of the Lord, what he says to you, can be relied upon. The precepts of God should become rooted in your life so that you can understand what is right and wrong. The commandment of God, leave your sin. The fear of God, the beginning of wisdom, a genuine reverence, live by his rules. All these things are very good things, are they not? The very nature of sin teaches us that we cannot cure ourselves, nor can sin cure itself. Sin will only make us worse and we cannot help ourselves. We must look to God alone to break its power and its consequences. And so we must come and welcome the workings of God within us. That is the conclusion that we come to. The great, one of the greatest Psalms in the scripture, revealing the means of grace. We can see his voice everywhere. Even though people wake up every single day and say, I don't even know if there is a God. And yet his voice is so loud. His voice is so clear in the word. Take advantage of the promises. If you seek, you will find. I believe that. That is a promise of God. He will open the eyes of the blind. He will have you understand where his footprints are in the clouds. He will enable you. He will give you a heart of flesh. And he will save you from your sin. But you must understand that these things... Help us see the beauty of who God is. If you have no desire to see the beauty of holiness, then you're still in love with the world. Then that needs to be fixed. May God have mercy upon your soul if you're in that condition. May God have mercy upon your soul if you do not seek the beauty of God. Let's go to the Lord right now in prayer and let's see what he'll do. Our Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that your word is clear and that by your spirit it will change the hearts of sinners and it will embolden the hearts of believers. It will give food to those who need it. It will put beauty into the eyes of those who wish to behold it. 
that you may be seen clearly, Lord, by the heart that seeks you with all its strength. And so, Lord, we pray that the one who died for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore the sins of those who trust him, that they might be received. And we know, Lord, that your promise is that whoever comes will never be cast out. And so we trust you and believe you for these things. May your means of grace reign supreme in this world. We pray these things for your glory and for the sake of sinners and for the sake of your people. We ask these things in our Lord's name. Amen.